Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. At least six in 10 Americans support access to abortion. One in four women will terminate a pregnancy. So what? Those statistics, as we know, only too well, were not enough to prevent the recent Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Battleground, a searing documentary directed by Emmy-nominated filmmaker and award-winning writer Cynthia Lowen, my guest today, penetrates the anti-abortion movement as never seen before. Completed before the recent Supreme Court decision, it contains many surprises, which of course we're going to talk about. Cynthia has a lot of other credits. Briefly, she's the director-producer of HBO's Netizens, a feature documentary about women and online harassment. She also produced and wrote Bully, which follows five children and their families through a year in the life of America's bullying crisis. It was nominated for two Emmys and was shortlisted for the Oscars and received the Alfred I. DuPont Columbia Award for Excellence in Journalism. As a result of the film's feedback, Cynthia co-created the Bully Project Social Action Campaign. Oh, there's more. Cynthia also happens to be an award-winning poet and winner of the National Poetry Series for her collection, The Cloud That Contained the Lightning. We have got a lot of ground to cover. So let's meet this passionate, committed, award-winning filmmaker. Cynthia, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me remotely from New York's Hudson Valley. Thank you so much, Sandy. I'm so happy to be here. So I got to get personal at the beginning. I watched Battleground, and it was so hard to do. I'm so passionate about this topic. I was around 50 years ago as a young adult handing out flyers and brochures and pushing for passage of Roe v. Wade. And to see how this all flipped around, I still can't wrap my head around this. I have to know from you, what the hell was it like to make this documentary, this powerful hour and 40 minutes? Oh, my God. Mm. Well, thank you so much for your words about the film, Sandy. Making the film was a lot of things. It was surprising in many ways. Of course, it was um, infuriating. And for a lot of us on the team, We've been saying, I think, you know, it sort of started to become clear pretty early in our in our filming process that things were looking really, really bad for the future of Roe. And for for quite some time, my team and I have been saying, you know, I think I think they're gonna overturn Roe. Like mm-hmm. I think this is actually happening. And, you know, really, literally through last week. We had people saying, oh, that'll never happen. I don't believe, they're not going to do it. That'll never happen. And, um, you know, lo and behold, it has happened. And even though I think we were prepared and preparing for it, it's still just totally shocking and wrenching. And I think a a lot of folks are still just even getting their heads around just that we live in a post-Roe America. I mean, it's really, it's hard to kind of fathom. And having spent time with 
people who are leaders of the anti-abortion movement for the past year and a half two years and hearing them say this phrase over and over again, post-Roe America, post-Roe America, and the fact that we now have a post-Roe America that it's a reality, it's just mind-boggling. I will say that in spending time with with the anti-abortion people who are in the film, one of the things that really just motivated me was, was really just pure curiosity in a lot of ways. Like I just really was trying to understand how it is possible given, as you said, that the vast majority of people in America support abortion access and one in four people who can become pregnant will terminate a pregnancy. Given that massive majority, the process of making this film for me really started with just, I I really wanted to understand how it, is possible that all these anti-abortion laws are being passed? How has all this anti-abortion legislation been put into place? Mm. And I wanted to just get behind both the power structures and I think the structures of, of stigma, which we see in several of the stories that take place in Alabama, that have made this possible, that have brought us to this place that is uncharted territory. So this film, if I can put words in your mouth, was for you personal and very political. And that was on many levels my takeaway. It was very, (laughs) very hard for me to watch because I couldn't tamp down my emotions. And I'd like to talk about the fact that there are surprises in this film. Yes, my assumption was that every anti-abortion person was some religious zealot who lived in the middle of the country, had a fourth grade education, and uh, (laughs) I'm watching in your movie. Yes, there may be some like that, but there are not a lot of women like that. And it blew me away, Cynthia. Well, thank you for those observations. Yeah, you know, I think I went into this film with a lot of assumptions about who anti-abortion people are and a lot of the images that I had seen are, you know, folks who are standing outside of abortion centers, harassing women, right, raising signs right. and praying. And having spent some time in Alabama talking to those folks and sort of seeing those folks, I was like, these are not the people who are passing the laws. I think there's there's more to be kind of unpacked here about who the folks are who are actually making it possible for all of these anti-abortion laws to be passed. And I really want to kind of get to the bottom of that, or or rather to the top of that, which is the reality that you have organizations like the Susan B. Anthony List and leaders like Marjorie Dannenfelser, who we learn when Justice Ginsburg passes away, has a direct We learned it earlier in the film, but um, it's a moment where we really see her direct power. She gets on the phone in in the wake of RBG passing away with President Trump. She talks to Vice President Pence. She talks to Mitch McConnell. And she expresses who she wants them to nominate for the next Supreme Court Justice of the United States. And that is Amy Coney Barrett. And that is the person that they nominate. It is the person that they confirm. And um, it is a justice who was championed by the anti-abortion movement. 
And I think we're seeing the results of the kind of access and power that the anti-abortion movement had to point to who they wanted sitting in those seats. Yeah, that's the fruits of their labor. And you can't not comment on the fact that your film is released. And again, it's so timely in the sense that today is the day that Katanji Brown Jackson is being sworn in as the first Black female member of the Supreme Court. It's almost as if you orchestrated you know, the current <laughs> events. I kept thinking, oh my God, it's all about the timing. Did you have any, any sense of the potency of that? I knew that 2020 was going to be kind of a, a watershed year for witnessing the intersection between abortion and politics in America because of how influential the anti-abortion movement and the Christian right had been in the first election of Donald Trump. And knowing, and that's something that you that you see in the film, we were able to get access to a secretly recorded meeting between Trump and leaders of the Christian right just a few weeks before the 2016 election. And in this meeting, the Christian right basically outlines, these are the things we want. We want anti-abortion Supreme Court justices. We want, they have several other agenda items. And Trump and Steve Bannon say, you know, look, get your people out to the polls, get your people out, get your congregations out to vote for me, and I will do what you want. I will mm -hmm. enact the mm -hmm. legislation and your priorities. And by the time we reach the end of the film, you have Marjorie Dannenfelser saying Trump fulfilled more promises than he made. I mean, the anti-abortion movement, frankly... I think was flabbergasted at the extent to which Trump ended up passing anti-abortion policies and seating anti-abortion judges. It surpassed their expectations completely. So I think that that kind of transactionality, they're very unshy about yeah. the 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 transactional nature of the relationship between the Christian right and the anti-abortion movement and policymakers like Donald Trump. They were very well aware that he was not particularly Christian, right, uh, not right. particularly moral, and certainly yeah. <laughs> not particularly anti-abortion, but they were like, if you do what you do, we'll get behind you. And he did what he said he would do. You know what, Cynthia? I was also struck by the access that you had to these groups. And I want to know how that was possible, mm -hmm. regardless of who somebody is, the minute you put a camera in front of your face, you're editorializing mm -hmm. and you have your bent. But uh, did they see you as a vehicle to perpetuate their cause, or did they have no clue as to where you were coming from? I think that they suspected that I'm probably a pro-choice person. I'm, you know, they could Google me and figure out, you know, I live in New York, I, I work in an industry that tends to be left-leaning and mm. 
progressive. Um, they could look at my prior work, which is about social justice issues. But the conversation that I had with them when I was approaching them in December of 2019 about following them in their work was, you know, look, putting aside one's personal perspective on abortion or opinions on abortion, the power and influence of the anti-abortion movement on American legislation, policy, and culture is a fact. And I think it's a fact that's worth exploring and understanding. Mm -hmm. And the pledge that I made to them was that I would depict them and their work and their goals and their perspectives in their own words with accuracy and as completely as possible. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. that was the principle upon which I filmed with them and largely it was verite filmmaking and the end product of the film is sort of, of course, as you say, there's choices that are made in, you know, camera and lighting right, and right. all those things, you know, but um, by and large, we tried to be as restrained as possible in editorializing and just sort of laying it out for, you know, it is what it is. And um, what we do with that is the important thing. How was their response to the film? They are happy with the film and feel that it has been, again, accurate portrayals right. fostering of them. their cause. I wouldn't say it's necessarily fostering their cause. I think they feel that it's accurate and, okay. mm -hmm. and accurately and respectfully portrays them in their work and their perspectives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to go back and I want you to talk about who you are personally and politically. As I mentioned in the introduction, you wrote the film Bully, and that you've got this verite bent about issues that I, I guess are clearly very personal. But where did that come from? Who was Cynthia, and what was Cynthia like growing up? And where <laughs> did you grow up? It's funny because I was just writing to a family friend that they were like, how did you, you know, sit through these interviews without screaming and and being frustrated? And I was saying, you know, as it turns out, contrary to what my father might say, I have a high capacity to sit and listen to people that I very much disagree with. And not let on about that. And just, you know, yeah, hear it, hear what they have to say. And it's okay to disagree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They can have their perspective, and I can hear how they arrived at it, and I can disagree, mm -hmm. and and that's okay. I was born in New York and uh, lived on Long Island until I was about 11, and then um, we moved to the Pioneer Valley in Massachusetts. And so I was sort of raised in a community with a lot of college towns and colleges mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, quite liberal, very, very progressive liberal community. Growing up, my friends and I were certainly thinking about justice and equality and inequality and were engaged on, on these, these questions and matters of, of justice and equality, I think, from the time we were teenagers. And, and, and did so you get a lot of that at home? 
Yeah, yeah. My father is、um, was a social worker. He was a special ed teacher. Then he was a social worker,、uh, and then he became an artist. So he was very much somebody who's, I think, embodiment of their life's work, whether it was working with young people. Uh, or you know, working with with families who were struggling, or young people who were ha- having difficulty in school with with behavioral issues or learning disabilities, that was really something that was his passion. And then art, I think, became an out an extension of that. And my mother was a science teacher, and、uh, then became a physician. And so, when you were going to school, and it was time for you to apply to college, was it one of those? I think I'd like to be a filmmaker when I grow up. I never expected I would be a filmmaker、um, when I was in high school and and college. Even I was always very focused on being a writer.、Hmm. I began writing when I was in elementary school. I wrote stories. I would do writing workshops throughout. Elementary school and junior high and high school and when I went to college, I became a creative writing major, and then I got a position working at a small poetry press following college、uh, called Four Way Books in New York City, and then I went to graduate school at Sarah Lawrence and got my MFA in poetry, and then was very much kind of involved in in the poetry world and、uh, had a book come out and. It was really around that time that my book was coming out, or that I had finished my book about J. Robert Oppenheimer and the atomic bomb, which is what my poetry collection is about. I really felt that kind of hunger to have my work be more directly engaged with contemporary issues. Issues, uh-huh. yeah. Uh huh. And so, what was your first big Example of that, and and also, what made you think you could make a movie? It's funny because all three of my films have now premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival: Bully, Netizens, and now Battleground. And it was actually at the Tribeca Film Festival many years back when I went. I stood online outside forever. I went to this film called Favela Rising, and it was really. After watching that film, and then the contributors to the film came up on stage, and hearing from them, and just seeing this film, and then seeing the people in the film, and just seeing how the film was talking about creativity and justice, I was just like blown away. I was like, "Oh my gosh, I want to make documentary films."、Um, and you can marry both of those areas. Yeah, yeah. It was like this very clear aha moment in life of just like, "Oh my gosh, that's what I want to do." And、um, it was through a friend's roommate who was working at A and E. I learned that there was a production called Act of Honor about a Mexican American Marine who was killed in the Battle of Fallujah when he jumped on a grenade. They were looking for a production assistant, and that was the first role I had in the film industry, working as a production assistant. In post production on this project called Act of Honor, and then out of that, I produced te- a pilot of a television series, a nonfiction television series, and then through those positions, I was able to meet several other documentary filmmakers. The New York documentary filmmaking world is is a really kind of tight knit community, and 
it was within a few years that Lee and I teamed up to start working on Bully. I've said this a lot when I interview filmmakers, that the power of a documentary just can't be overstated. And that, to me, it should be must-viewing in schools in terms of appropriateness. But this is where you're exposed to different different perspectives and and different thoughts. And not everybody's going to go to a movie theater, but to show a documentary in school, you've got this captive audience and that's really important. Yeah. For all of, for all of my films, we create large scale impact and educational engagement campaigns. And Bully, I think was a film that really put impact engagement around documentary films on the map. We were able to have over 5 million students see the film free of cost with their educators. We underwrote getting buses from schools to the theaters. We had um, the entire Cleveland Public School District, 40,000 kids went to see the film. We had wraparound materials. We had educational materials. And it's been really, it's been wonderful because I teach when I'm able to at Colorado College in their film and media studies program and having students who say, oh my gosh, I watched Bully in school. I know that (laughs) film. It changed my life. Um, You know, I still quite often uh, am am talking to people who saw the film and whose, whose lives were changed by it. And I think that that's something that has really stuck with me about the potential of documentary films to, as you said, really shift people's perspectives and kind of open their eyes to things that perhaps are all around them, but they've never been able to really see in the way that documentaries, I think, kind of crystallize certain things. And 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 I think that's true for, for all three of these films, something that they really share you know, with bullying, like bullying is is ubiquitous. It's right. something that for all of us, for generation yeah, you don't have after to generation, twelve year old that it right. Was bullied, it's like yeah. we all we all have one way or another uh, for a, you know a victim since, mm-hmm. since the dawn of time had right. had experiences with bullying, and yet it was something that just for whatever reason no one had ever really sort of like shined a spotlight on to be like, hey, like actually this is not normal. Can we talk about this for a minute and and of course, you know, once we sort of took this phenomenon and said, let's stop normalizing this and actually unpack it, what ended up happening there was was a transformation, I think, in our perspectives about bullying, which is it's not normal. It's devastating, deadly, and, you know, damaging. And this is something that schools and communities need ways to really confront and constructively deal with. So that was sort of the takeaway coming out of that film. And then again, for netizens, it's like, for all of us who are online, it's just like, oh, well, like, online harassment is, is just ubiquitous. Like, yeah. it's just... So ever, what's the like, point? What's the big deal? Right. You know? So, mm-hmm. and then, and then again, kind of saying, well, okay, let's talk about this for a minute. And then seeing through the women in the film that their lives offline are, are completely transformed. They can't get jobs. They can't go on dates. They're totally vulnerable to people coming to their homes, trying to attack them. You know, that that what happens online is a 
extension of, of our lives offline. Um, and I think now we're at a point where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, of course, if you're getting death threats online and your address is posted everywhere, that's a huge problem. So I think, again, like our attitudes about what the impact of online safety and online harassment is has really shifted. And again, for this film, you know, it's like, I think I had that question of just like, the politics around abortion are just such a facet of being an American. I think everybody kind of knows abortion and guns are like the two issues that you might want to like steer clear of on Thanksgiving with, you know, family members. As, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. like, all right, well, like, let's, let's talk about this. How has abortion become such a hot button issue? And I think a large part of the answer to that is that it's been manufactured as a hot button issue by politicians who want to harness a single issue voter block or create a single issue voter block to harness and then consolidate their power using using this issue as a way to really drive people to the polls. I'm saying this tongue in cheek, but there's a point to it. I have two pieces of philosophy that I spout all the time that to me seem just, how can you argue with this? If you don't believe in abortion, don't have one. And if you don't believe in gay marriage, don't get gay married. And to me, how does my having an abortion in any way impact your life? Right. I understand I'm dumbing down with this, but this is what is so difficult for me, especially since this has been going on. We've had this on the books for 50 years. And what the hell difference is it to you if I have an abortion? And as a result of issues that are going on, and certainly your film hit it home hard for me, was it's it's critical and it's important to demonstrate and to show get out there in your numbers and show your support but i can't do that now that's not that's not enough for me and mm-hmm. i said to myself you know what i'm going to put myself out there that if and when the time comes and a woman needs an abortion who does not live in the tri-state area that i do and needs the place to stay or needs some kind of transportation, whatever it might be, I will provide that because I can't <laughs> I can't yeah. feel impotent anymore. Why can't the anti-abortion movement just come to a position that it's a person's personal choice and that's fine. If you feel that abortion is not the right choice for you, if you don't believe that that's uh, the the moral and ethical decision for you personally, then that's fine. You know, don't have an abortion. And I think one of the things that was really illuminating to me that I learned in the process of making this film comes in the form of one of the interviews we have with a journalist, Alex Morris, who's a journalist from Rolling Stone, And she was brought up evangelical in Birmingham and um, has has since departed from from the faith of her upbringing, still very much Christian, but is not of the same group that she was brought up in. And what she shares that I found so interesting was that there's, there's a significant number of Americans who believe that Jesus is going to come back soon, any day now, between like now and 2050. And that when Jesus comes back, there will be a day of judgment 
And on the Day of Judgment, people are judged, one, for their personal actions, and two, for the kind of morality of their, of their nation. And realizing that, that there are folks who, who believe that and believe that way and think that their own sort of what happens to them on the Day of Judgment depends not only upon how they conduct themselves, but also upon whether their country is, quote, morally conducting itself, quote, morally. That was new information to me that helped me understand why there are people who believe that it's not enough for them to just say, it's not the right choice for me, Mm. um, that they believe that the righteous thing for them to do is to push for their country to not have abortion, which of course is a, is a religious perspective. And, and what I come back to is we very clearly have a separation between church and state as a fundamental value of this country. Now I'm not so sure. Exactly. And I think that's the breakdown. That's a fundamental, profound breakdown that we are seeing where it's fine for people to have their own faith perspectives that radically diverge from other people's perspectives. That is fine, but it should not be put into law. Religious beliefs should not be driving American law and policy. And that's the breakdown that we're seeing. And that is the problem. That is a problem of legislation. It is a problem of democracy. And so when when folks ask sometimes, like, well, isn't it isn't it hard for you to like listen to to these folks' perspectives, you know? And and I'm like, it's people can people can believe all kinds of things. Like that's fine. It's fine for you to believe something that is really different from what I believe. But the problem is when the beliefs of the minority, particularly religiously motivated beliefs of the of the minority, are being encoded into American legislation, law, policy, and the justice system. And and that's where I'm like it's not the failure of those people who are pushed. All they're doing is pushing hard and using every tool they can find, fair or unfair, true or untrue. They're using everything that they can use to leverage their position. And to me, it's the fault of a system that is allowing a minority of people to impose their will upon the majority when it's coming from, for many, not all, but for many, when it's coming from a religiously driven perspective, that's the systemic problem. And that's the systemic breakdown. And that's what we're witnessing that is really frightening. Absolutely. And and I think as Americans, we're coming to this pivotal point of having to ask ourselves, are we witnessing the breakdown between church and state and are we witnessing, you know, an irreparable breakdown between church and state? And we have, as the film reveals in this meeting between Donald Trump and leaders of the Christian right, you know, we have a group of Americans who are very committed to breaking down the division between church and state, who 
because of their their faith beliefs, want to see America as a quote Christian nation, and and that's really you know what we are up against right now. Yeah, yeah. I sometimes feel that that's literally Mount Everest. Are we going to be able to climb this thing and get to the top? The people who certainly don't feel that way. I'm curious, Cynthia, in the work that you've done, you've been tackling issues that are your issues, as opposed to somebody coming up to you and suggesting that you do thus and such. Are you the mistress of your own fate, your (laughs) own professional fate? Yes, I'm my own boss. I feel like I have been incredibly fortunate to be able to pursue projects that I have felt deeply passionate about and that I have been able to get the support to to make. And I really have to acknowledge and I'm enthused and thrilled to acknowledge the incredible funders who have stood shoulder to shoulder in this work in in projects like this that are really challenging, um, including Ruth Ann Harnish and the Harnish Foundation. Safe Space Pictures and our EPs, Nicole Shipley and Ryan Harrington and Dexter Braff, who is of Fifth Man Pictures, who is one of the other EPs on this project. And then we also had the incredible support of Cindy Mail and Susan Bevan and several others, New York State Council on the Arts, who saw the need and importance of tackling the issue of abortion through this very sort of unconventional unconventional lens. lens. Yeah, yeah. And who for filmmakers it's it's those folks who are willing to take these risks with us that make it possible to to follow our passions, which is Yeah, been, but don't knock great. your track record for God's sake, you know. I mean <laughs> nobody suffers fools gladly. I'm curious what irons are in the fire for you now that life has kind of come back to normal? Yeah, you know, I'm really, I've been really happy to be getting back to writing more over the course of the pandemic. And so I have been working on a scripted series that is taking a lot of the things that I witnessed and learned from the making of Battleground and turning that into a scripted one-hour drama series. So I'm in the process of trying to get that out because I think abortion, again, it's still something that is is super controversial. We don't see it often reflected in narrative genres. And I think a series about the kind of political political chessboard that we're watching unfold with the anti-abortion movement and, and pro-choice advocates and movement, you know, I think this is something that we're going to see unfolding for, for years to come and that I'm interested in depicting in a, a narrative drama. So I've been working on writing that. And Looking at some potential other doc ideas. We'll see. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> so great that you're kind of, like I said, in the mistress of your own fate, that you've got this track record and then these ideas come and you get the support and that you can go out there and tell your story or their stories. And I also think that a great tie that binds all these wonderful women that I've had conversations with is whether it happened naturally or it took work, 
you all have such a strong sense of self. And that is just so critical. And it comes through in spades. It really does. Oh, thank you so much, Sandy. It's an interesting time to kind of be, uh, you know, an artist, an independent artist. And I think there, you know, I hope to see a lot more support for filmmakers, for artists, because I think it's a real risk when you're starting these projects and kind of have that gut feeling like, I think, I think this is the right decision. I think this needs to be done. But there's always that kind of period of time where you have to go out there and often invest yourself or not pay yourself for quite some time to just get to the point where you have a proof of concept, where you mm-hmm. have access to the people through whom you feel you can tell a story or a sample reel. And I, what I've been finding is that that period of time in film often is getting sort of pushed later and later and later where it gets harder and harder to get funding if you don't have like a rough cut or mm. sometimes even a fine cut or, uh-huh. um, you know. And but so you also much have street cred, though. You have a rep. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think being at sort of this position in my career now is really, of course, gratifying. And I feel very, you know, I feel very lucky to to be in this position and I just have a, I have such empathy for folks who are starting out and are earlier and kind of figuring out, you know, like, how do I get this thing made? How do I even, how do I afford to, to keep a roof over my head and pay my rent at the same time yeah, I'm trying yeah. on the weekends to go out and do these film shoots? And, you know, so it's a, it's a really, it's a tricky balance. Well, they've got you as a great resource. So Cynthia, I just want to extend to you an invitation that we'd love to have you back if there's another project that you're working on and want to share. Aside from the film having such an impact on me, (laughs) to have watched this 10 minutes after the Roe v. Wade decision, I thought this was just really fascinating. Forgive me for the gushing, but we really all could use so many Cynthia Lowens. Thank you so much for the work that you do. I can't thank you enough for um, sharing your life and your passions with us. Thank you so much, Sandy. I really appreciate it. I'm so happy to be on. And I will certainly come back in the future. I would love that. Okay, I'm holding your feet to the fire for that. (laughs) Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.